This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're uh, doing some film stuff today. Uh, What is happening, Danielle Henderson? Uh, Well, the oil truck is leaving my house right now. I don't know if you can hear that rumbling, but I just had my oil filled up, which hopefully soon in the next coming years, I'll be able to get away from fossil fuels. Oh, wait, um, let me let me ask you this. I've been to your house now, so I know where shit is. Where was the oil stuff? In the garage. That big tank did in the garage. Did I completely miss that when we did the tour? You might have, because you were so focused on which bathroom was the Diva Cut bathroom. I, but I also was, <laughs> I think when I was in the garage, I was mostly thinking about the fact that there used to be cows in there, right? Yeah, because there's a carve out still on the on the ground where the cow troughs used to be, and okay. now it's just filled in with gravel. But you could still see the outline of where they used to water the cows and feed the cows. So where was the oil tank? Was it in the middle of the room, and I just didn't notice it or something? No, it was back against the wall. Okay. So when you first, if you were to walk into the garage from the front, like from mm-hmm. the barn doors, um, it would be off to your left. I see, I see. When we come in through the house, it was off to the right. So oh, I see. It's a big old tank. Nobody, nobody will know except for me that all these details. <laughs> that, that excites me very much when I have insider info that nobody else has. Um, I'll have to take a video the next time they're filling it up. But yeah, they have to come and fill it up from this big old truck. And they have to basically break into my garage every time. And that, that's <laughs> yeah. what heats your entire house? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this oil. And I was very excited because (laughs) this is the kind of thing that excites me now. Um, So I was on this program last year because oil is very fucking expensive. Very fucking expensive. Which is yet another reason why I want to move away from it, but also just an environmental sense I want to move away from it. So I was on this program. The oil company that I use is like, look, we know oil is expensive. If you give us, it was like $1,100 a month. Through the winter, uh, we'll make sure that you never have to pay more than that. So even if the gas prices go up, yeah. or oil prices go up, you will never pay more than $1,100. $1,100 a month to heat this house. Okay, first of all, that's a lot of money. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a lot of money. Oh, but also, yeah. yeah, they do that with the power here, where it's nice. like you just pay a steady bill so yeah. that you're never paying like you know, $200 one month and then like $1,100 another month or something. So you're- Exactly. And that, I prefer that. That's why I'm like, all right, $1,100 yeah. is a lot. But if I don't do this, I could be surprised with a bill for like $3,000 one month and I'm not about to do that. So that's just your gas bill? Like, do you pay power there? Yeah, I pay power. Okay. Uh, Water. Oil. 
propane. I have a well, so I don't pay water. Oh. Oh. But because I have a well and because I'm not on the city septic, I have to pay every year to have the septic emptied and treated. Right. Um, and then I pay for like, you know, internet and shit like that. So you pay the whole oil and propane. Those are two separate bills. Yeah. Because propane is what heats my oven and my dryer. Wow, dude. Yeah. So 1100 bucks a month, wow. which is a lot. Yeah. Um. But I'm like, all right, I'm not going to get that surprise bill. So this year I was like, oh, fuck, like I haven't worked all year. This is going to be so hard. So I called the gas company or the oil people and I was like, hey, you had this program last year. I'm wondering if I could sign up for it again. And this is in September. And they're like, oh, yeah, we sent the paperwork out in July. And I'm like, I didn't get it or I didn't open it. You know, I'm very lax with my mail. Can I still do it? And they're like, yeah, totally, no problem. And then she looked it up. And she was like, well, because you were on this program last year where you were paying $1,100 a month, uh, you didn't actually use that much oil and you have a credit. So this year, if you want to sign up for the program, uh, it'll be $300 a month Yay! because of this credit. All and right. I was like, fuck yes. Ah. <laughs> I could not have been timed better. Love but that's that. the kind of thing that excites me now. It's like I'm saving over $700 a month on my heat for my house. Dude, that is an absolute win. Take that yeah. shit. That's awesome. And, she, and she's like, why aren't you using that much, that much fucking oil? And I was like, oh, because I close off every room like I live in a castle. Like mm. I only heat the rooms I use. <laughs> so, and I'm very, very on point with that. Like I got these Nest thermostats that are on schedule. So like, if I'm not in that room, that room was cold. Yeah. <laughs> like, I keep my shit tight. So she's like, yeah, you're doing great. Like, you're not using that much. And I was like, fucking great, because I don't want them to have to break into my house every goddamn month. Um, <laughs> I had a certain lock on the on the inside of the garage door because they're barn doors. So I'm like, oh, well, I have to have, like, a different lock. And they just couldn't get in because the they're like, well, the person who lived here for the last 30 years just left it open. And I was like, I ain't doing that. Yeah. I ain't doing that. I I'm not that motherfucker. We talked about right? that. You're like, yeah. yeah, that's some other lady, not me. That's a whole other motherfucker. <laughs> I am not leaving my house unlocked in any sense. No kidding. So I had to put this certain latch, and I think I'm going to get like a um, a doorbell for that side of the house so they can just, instead of breaking in, just like ring the doorbell and I'll come down and unlock it. Yeah. And put my my other lock back on. Because I'm always here. It's not like I'm going to miss them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was very, very fucking exciting for me as a homeowner that I'm saving over $700 a fucking month this winter. That and, is awesome. And it could not have come at a better time. Yeah. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. We're, uh, so, uh, was it was it warm when you were here? Like, were you comfortable? Dude, yes. I was like, this okay. is the most comfortable environment to sleep ever. Oh, good. Like, good. And, and you know me, like, I don't sleep naked. I sleep with pajamas and, you know, so even... In spite of all that stuff, I was like, yeah, this is super cozy. Oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah, and I also, I put plastic on the windows. Like, I used to watch my grandma do that in the winter and be like, this is the most old lady shit I've ever seen. Yeah. But it fucking works. Like, I would feel a draft on my neck when I was sitting watching TV in the living room. Like, a ghost was trying to, like, get my attention. <laughs> And so I put the plastic up and now I'm not feeling those drafts because, again, it's going to be years till I can get all these fucking windows replaced. I yeah. have 27 windows in my house. Yeah, I I think for me, <laughs> so. the thing that was so, the you know, because I had all obviously had visions of what I thought your house would be like. 
And then when I went there, it was so much bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> like, I really did. And like, you you saying like, you have 27 windows, you got to like have different places in the house that are sealed off when you're not in them. That was real. Like the whole yeah. upstairs is this, in, <laughs> is this whole other ecosystem. Completely. <laughs> Downstairs is normal. Like, oh, you have a kitchen and a bedroom and a couple of bathrooms and like my laundry's down there. I live downstairs. Yeah. For the most part. But then I sleep upstairs and it's like this barren wasteland where I refuse to buy furniture until I actually renovate. And I try to make it comfortable enough for me to sleep and occasionally work. But it is, it's like 2,500 more square feet upstairs that I just don't, right now, can't use. And I, I mean, need. again, this is the information that only I know, only a select <laughs> few people know. But you have this entire area of the upstairs that literally looks like, I mean, it looks like either where somebody like Father John Misty would record his album <laughs> meets fucking yoga, sound bath, like Integratron shit meets like a hereditary-esque witch meeting. Like it's this giant, vaulted, gorgeous Area. I don't know what what you would even call it. It looks like an auditorium. It really feels like an auditorium. I call it the great room. And it's just like this room with these 20-foot ceilings. It looks like a fucking cathedral in there. It is going to be beautiful one day. But right now, it is just like this echoing chamber that is massive. It is a massive fucking room. Yes. And it's like, it's not like sectioned off into like little tiny rooms. It's just one big, like... It looks like a church up there. And, and I don't know if it's because there was an... I don't know if it was because there was an actual pew up there. I know. The people who left this house left me a church pew. And I was like, all right, Wild. there's a church pew up here as a bench. Great. Yeah. I mean, listen, yeah, it's I, huge. It, I live in Georgia. I have seen churches that are around the size of this room, like tucked into <laughs> neighborhoods, right? Like just, And that's just a fraction. It's a quarter of my house. It's a fraction of this fucking house. I know. And I and I was I was so in awe of that space. But then now Aww. that you're telling me about it in, in like financial terms to like heat and cool these types of areas, I'm like, oh damn. Exactly. So I and that in that room, for example, I do have a nest thermostat in there and I keep it on the eco setting so the pipes won't freeze. Uh. But I do not hang out in that room in the in the winter. And I also don't hang out there in the summer because it's boiling ass hot. Yeah. So that room is unusable to me for the most part, most of the year. <laughs> <laughs> until I get this renovation going. But yeah, I keep it on just like a low setting so the, the pipes don't freeze. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I was being so obnoxious when I was at your place because I was walking you were not. I was walking around being like, oh, here's what you should do with this part. I mean, I was just like trying to envision your place as this like public <laughs> Airbnb meets retreat. And you were like, do you know me? Do you think I'm going to like let... <laughs> strangers come over all willy-nilly. <laughs> I fucking loved it because that is the goal of this house. Like, it will be a commune one day for all of my friends wow. who are either childless or partnerless or just want to leave their families and leave their partners. <laughs> like, it will be a space, as I envision it, for anyone I know and love to come and live with me as we age. 
because none of us have a plan. Like, none of us are retiring with any money. None of us have any fucking plan. So the barn, I'm eventually going to turn into a three-bedroom guest house with a kitchenette. And then the top floor, which is similar to the top floor of the house, and it's a hayloft because this used to be a barn. That's why it's so big up there. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to leave in the barn, I'm going to leave the hayloft open for like general space. So if you're an artist, you can do art. If you are just want a place to sit and chill, you can sit and chill. Um, but it's going to be a nice big open space and three people could live in there. And then there are there are six bedrooms in the house. That's not even, there will be nine bedrooms on this property eventually. I, w- I was telling you about, um, you know, there's this place in Northern California that I dream of one day going to called Salmon Creek Farm. And it's this yes. kind of, you know, beautiful little retreat in the woods where, um, you know, artists can go and, and other folks to kind of like, I don't know, do art, but also just like tend to the land because everybody's like responsible for contributing uh, I yeah. go to the Instagram a lot and I just look at it because it's so beautiful. <laughs> but I was like, this is what you should do. You should have a Salmon Creek farm here. And that's, that would be lovely. I would love that. I would actually love to turn the barn into that kind of space. Yeah. Where like I can just, you know, kind of have people, because I, I fundamentally don't believe that you should have to pay for a retreat, for a creative retreat. Yeah or really any kind of retreat. Um, but especially when I see writers like, oh, I'm paying to go to this place to write. And I'm like, I live in, like, I already live in that. I don't need to pay to go somewhere to write. And I'm lucky that I live in that. And I want to share that with people. So it won't be open. It probably won't be open to strangers, um, but definitely to my friends. And I think eventually what I'd like to do is have just the barn be that kind of retreat for people where they don't have to pay. They just have to show up and have to do like, if, if you pass the background check, you can just come and write your book. But you should get, I mean, I'm, listen, I'm, you know me, I love a business idea. The wheels start turning in my head. Get them to pay (laughs) with labor. Like they, they got to come and they got to like, you know, you're trying to like, you know, maybe they have to clear the carpet out of the Diva Cup bathroom. (laughs) Maybe that's their big project for, you know. They could do some yard work, some gardening. There'll definitely be a big old garden here at some point. Or they could cook. Um, They could cook. Bare minimum. Yeah. Bare minimum. For themselves, for sure. For sure, take care of yourself. But yeah, I think that someone, another friend of mine who'd come to visit, because this is, you're not the only one. Like, I actually love hearing these ideas because I've had, in one month, I had like three friends come to visit now that I have this guest room. Yeah. And I'm loving it. And one of my other friends who came to visit, Jessica Hopper. Yeah. She's a great writer. She's working on a bunch of great documentaries. And she released a great documentary about female musicians last year. Um, You should definitely look it up. We got to get her her. on the pod, by the way. 100%. She's just my favorite person. I just, I love talking to her. I just love talking to her. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, you should definitely like do some commune shit here. But you should also, she's like, what you should do is have a retreat and market it to like, just these like super rich women or, or like super, super rich people. Rich <laughs> she's like, you know, like super rich people are like, I want to learn how to write. And she's like, you should host like a, I want, I'll teach you how to write retreat and make them pay like 5,000 bucks for it. And then you could use that to fund all the free retreats you want to do for the rest of the year. <laughs> Listen, I love that idea. I love that idea. Um, and I know people, I'm not saying I know them well. But I know people, especially when I was living in L.A., who do that shit all the time, who don't have yeah. jobs. They just go for like a weekend to some fucking weird place in the woods and they get like their chakras aligned and some other <laughs> shit <laughs> and they pay a lot of money for it. 
there are people willing to pay for it, I know. But I, I'm like, all right, my friends will never have to pay, but I will find some rich people to fund the rest of the year. Yeah. Like, I could put up with some some weird rich people, like, demanding wealthy folks for, like, a month, if it means for the next 11 months of the year, everyone I know can come and chill out for months on end for free. Yeah. I mean, you have, like, maybe two sessions. You'll have, like, a chill session for your friends, and then you have the rich women session (laughs) where they will overpay for the pleasure of doing nothing essentially (laughs) or like feels feels anti-feminist feels anti-feminist but you know what (laughs) if you got the money i don't care what fucking gender you are (laughs) come pay for this goddamn retreat you gotta pay that oil bill girl don't think of it like that (laughs) feminism this is the other thing That's, that's survival girl like Pay that oil bill. Feminism goes out the window when it comes time to paying the oil bill or <laughs> listening to Van Halen. Both times I'm like, I don't know if I'm a feminist anymore. I fucking love Van Halen. <laughs> Wait, so let, are we pivoting to this topic? Because what what happened there? What What's going on there? Because you know how I feel about Van Halen, too. So no, I, that is just a thought that I have sometimes when I listen, because I listen to a lot of old metal, old rock, like yes. I love old heavy metal. And they were not progressive people at all back then. And Van Halen's whole thing, once David Lee Roth was like in his prime, his whole thing was just like, I'm a horny dude who looks like a tiny lion and I just want women in bikinis and I'm going to ogle them. And I'm like, this does not feel right, but I fucking love this song. Yeah, but see, I want to say we've talked about this before. And because listen, we know how I feel about it. we are on the same page. That is our age. Like our our yes. demographic, the people our age, we were around for that sunset strip, like late 80s fucking, you know, what do you call it? Cock rock. Is that what do you what is it called? Cock rock? <laughs> I've heard it referred cock to as sounds right. butt rock, cock rock. <laughs> Hair metal, (laughs) like whatever it was called. I I was like in middle school when that came out and it was everything. Like everybody in my middle school was into like Warrant and Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses and shit. Yes. So there was that like moment where I think us as, as, as young women probably internalized some of that shit being like, why are there chicks in bikinis? And uh, yes. why is uh, David Lee Roth? I-, I would argue that David Lee Roth was sort of playing with gender himself. I mean, there were times yes, where- they all were. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's complicated. They all were. They were I mean, when you watch the decline of Western civilization, the metal years, when yeah. you read that book that you got me, Nothing But a Good Time. Oh, hell yeah. It's like, they were all fucking around with like leggings and, and gender play. And like, I think there's an essay in here for us. I think we have to write about this and work through our thoughts because I agree yeah. that there was something about the way that, and I'm specific to Van Halen and David Lee Roth here. There was something specific about the way that he talked about women that I felt like he was kind of venerating women. Like he just fucking loves women. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he did it in that 80s way, but he was never like, look at this piece of shit slut. Like, it was never like that. Like, some bands absolutely went there. Right. But he was just like, I fucking love women. I love fucking. What's the problem? (laughs) Like, it was aggressively heterosexual, but it didn't feel cruel to me um, with them, with them specifically. But yeah, like, I just, I I think about it sometimes when I'm just, you know, making my chaotic playlist, which include things like back that ass up into Ani DeFranco. (laughs) 
Like my playlist, you've listened to my playlist now on an eight hour car ride. My playlists are insane. Yeah. And sometimes a song will come on and I'm just like, I do love Hot for Teacher, but listen to these <laughs> lyrics I'm singing right now. <laughs> I, I, I defend those choices. In fact, I, I mean, bare men's, you're a triple fucking Gemini and you contain multitudes. We know that. <laughs> But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I uh, don't. I would sit there and think that you're a bad feminist because a, you listen to Van Halen and other hair metal bands of the era, or b, that you want to overcharge rich white women to come to your house. <laughs> just racist. I'm not. I'm not anti-feminist. I'm just racist. I just want white women to fund my entire life. What's the fucking problem? <laughs> I must I, like. I, I'm like it's called well, reparations. Like, what is the problem? And maybe I'm wrong for that. It's called personal reparations. Look it up. <laughs> Start where you are with your reparations journey. Listen, you're gonna have to give me a scholarship. Like I'm not in that position to overpay for fucking spiritual enlightenment. I know that shit. So. We'll find someone. We'll find someone who has actually been to Salmon Creek to also fund. Like, oh, if you come, you have to. It's like buy one, support one. Like, if you come, you have to also buy a scholarship for somebody. Yeah, I'm like a pair of Bomba socks. Okay, like <laughs> if you come, if you're Gwyneth Paltrow and you're gooping up to Warwick, then break me off a fucking scholarship. I want to stay in the in the bottom part of the barn. You can have the rest of whatever, the rest of the grounds, but give me a little something. Yeah, there's like three other acres for you to explore. I'll put a tiny house back there for you if that's what you want. You want privacy? You can pay a little more for privacy. Uh, look, but you gotta look, put some I'll scholarship sleep, kids in this house. I'll sleep in that Father John Misty recording studio. I'll just put, <laughs> they do that in Esalen. They do that in Esalen. Like, some, yes. there's a level at Esalen where you literally just bring a sleeping bag and, and sleep in a fucking yoga studio. So exactly. there we go. And it's like $500 to do that. <laughs> Just sleep on the floor in a big old cathedral room. Yes. So well, I'm going to make go. it super fucking comfortable. And I want people to be able to create without stress. Because And here's the thing. That's all I ever wanted when I was younger. Like, I would read about people paying for writing retreats, and I'm like, God, I can't go, but wouldn't it be great to just focus on a book for a month, like, before, you know, I kind of set my life up so that I could do that? That's all I wanted when I was a young creative person. So that's why I want to give it back. Like, I understand how that can be revolutionary to your creativity or to your fucking life. Right. So I want to give that back. Although I will say, you told me a detail about Salmon Creek that I will not abide. Um, (laughs) Ain't nobody composting their own shit here. I will have plumbing. (laughs) Listen, I will have plumbing. <laughs> that that's the reason why I've actually not pulled the trigger on Salmon Creek because I was like, oh, you have to shovel your your own shit. Literally. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and then they use it for compost and then you are eating vegetables from a garden that was fertilized by other people's shit. Well, and like I, like we talked about when I was there about I was like, you don't want my my poops to go back into the food system because hell no <laughs> I, I ate wendy's and dunkin donuts like <laughs> maybe two or three times when we were together in maine so don't put that back in the food system. <laughs> that is not gonna grow crops i can guarantee it 
You're like, why is everything withering on the vine? And then it's just like <laughs> a little Wendy straw is growing out next to the plants. <laughs> why <laughs> somehow? <laughs> why are our vegetables growing fried apple pies from McDonald's <laughs> instead of usable fruits? All right, this episode is either called I'm a pair of Bombas socks or you don't want my shit. (laughs) Yeah, instead of like the the tomatoes, the beautiful, gorgeous tomatoes that would be growing on the vine are like munchkins. Powdered (laughs) munchkins and blueberry munchkins. I mean... Every every bloom is like, oh my god, does that tomato have a cigarette? A lit cigarette? (laughs) Like a lit cigarette is inside this tomato as it's growing? What the fuck? Like hanging out of its little tomato stem. (laughs) Yeah, so thank thank God you're not making us do that in your retreat. (laughs) No. Plumbing for sure. The barn actually already has plumbing. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because they used to like fill up the water troughs in there. Interesting. So it has plumbing. So I just need to like, I just need to make a shitload of money (laughs) so I can make these dreams come true. Yes. Um, But then you can, and you know, like I said, you always have a bedroom here. You always have a space here. Thank you so much. I don't care what happens in your life. You bring that dog and you come on up here. I don't even care if you're just like, look, I just want to disappear from society for a year. Great. Come on up. I won't tell a goddamn soul you're here. I think my Christmas wish for this year is that you and I get rich enough so you can have a retreat and I can go to your retreat. I think that's a Perfect. simple Christmas wish this year. You could do that. I, you could do that this Christmas. Like I will <laughs> use my miles to buy you a fucking ticket and you could stay upstairs for a month. <laughs> you could do that this year. That is a realizable dream. Well, let me let me get my sleeping bag out of the closet and I'll, <laughs> I'll meet you there. <laughs> There are bedrooms up here that are just serial killer-like. Like, Like I I was showing someone else around the house after you visited. I had another friend visit, and I kind of paused in the middle of a hallway. I think I did this with you, too, and I kind of paused, and there's two bedrooms that are across from each other. And I was like, oh, and eventually this will be my bedroom, like all of this, because I'm taking over the bedroom next door. Mm -hmm. And she was like, this is... This is like the size of my apartment right now in New York City. She's like, so your bedroom is going to be the size of my apartment one day. And I was like, it's also the size of every apartment I've ever lived in. So, yes, I'm like somebody in kept who is raised in captivity. And I'm like, I just I know I got all this space, but I still just need like my own little space in the big space. <laughs> so there will always be space. So I feel like other people should use the space that I'm not using because I'm just going to keep getting smaller and smaller in here. Yeah. Well, but it's great. It's great to have the space to play around with. And eventually, whether it's two years or 10 or 20, eventually it's going to be a place where we can all fucking retire Golden Girl style and make our weird art. And you can do whatever you want to the front yard. You can put as many things as you want in the yard. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate I'll give, that. I'll give you, give you a dedicated fenced-in space. We'll call it Millie's Place. Don't We're going to have like be... concrete swans out there and a trellis where people can get fucking married and shit like it's gonna be don't give don't give me an inch i will take 10 miles the the row the the marriage (laughs) the marriage row will just be lined with bird feeders as they walk down the aisle (laughs) holy shit well i'm excited for you i'm excited for this this potential business idea and 
Other, otherwise, you. I just, you know, I love talking about your house. Now that I've been there, Aww. I love talking about it. Thank you. It makes me so happy, especially because you. the first thing you said when you walked in was like, it smells like a yoga studio in here. Because I don't know what it smells like. I'm so nose blind to this place. And I just love that it was cozy and comfortable and smelled good. Yeah. You're halfway there to your yoga retreat, so. Halfway there? I could take one of the couches out downstairs and do it that and do it there. Yeah. That would be awesome. Come through. I got plastic on the windows. Your hot breath will be all steaming up everything while you're <laughs> huffing and puffing through a downward dog. Come through. Yeah. But yeah, I'm very, I'm very, very lucky to have my house. And even though some days I look around and I'm like, should I sell this thing and just live in a more reasonable way? <laughs> I feel like I will never get this again. I will never have the option to get this again. No, it's so uniquely you. And um, I don't want you to get rid of it because I got lots of business ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking of business ideas, what about the podcast that we started together? <laughs> should we? That's start a very good transition. <laughs> Ah, I did good. it. You did it. Right in time for the end of the year. I did it. So uh, did you come up with this? This was your want to do it? I believe, I believe it was. Yes. I believe this theme was, was speaking of the 80s, yeah. <laughs> this is something dear to my heart as I feel like almost every movie I watched in the 80s had one of these. Mm-hmm. Um, because our theme this week is Pedal to the metal, we're talking about car chase movies. We are talking about car chase movies. Have you ever been in a car chase or have you ever been involved in a race of any kind? Absolutely not. I am so risk averse, especially when it comes to cars. Yeah. I've never fucked around. The most I ever did was that game at a stoplight where you get out and run around the car. (laughs) And then, then you have to sit down back in your seat before the light changes. And the last time I played it, I ran around the car so fast. I was in the front front passenger seat, ran around the car so fast, hit my tit, my left tit, directly <laughs> in the corner of the car door. And I still have a scar to this day. And I was like, I could have impaled myself. Like, my, it was just right there out over my heart. I've got a scar. Yeah, I from playing this dumb game. <laughs> what what is that game called? Do you remember? I don't I think we just called it fire drill. Okay. Like someone would just scream out fire drill and everyone would get out of the car and run around. It. If you're like in high school right now and you're listening to us talk about these fucking games we used to play before the internet <laughs> happened, you're probably like were they pilgrims? Like what why were they entertaining themselves in such Really boring, weird ways. But Although I will counter that by saying, do you remember there was a point where Ghost Ride the Whip was a thing? Girl, you know I did. I actually have been in a whip that was ghost ridden. <laughs> no! Yes! <laughs> Say more about that. God, I love Atlanta. Okay, ATL, baby, number one. Atlians forever. Atlians forever. <laughs> that, that shit was happening. Listen, I, I was old enough. In, I, I'm in... I'm an Atlian for life. I've been here pretty much my entire life since I was <laughs> nine years old. And I, I, w- I remember when Freaknik, the original Freaknik was happening in the 90s. That was a fucking, that was before even the term Ghost Riding the Whip was out there. People were literally taking like those like Dodge Caravan minivans. Do you remember like those cars that, people's moms drove to soccer practice and they would open up the door, the sliding door 
And like oh, God. that thing would be in neutral going down the freeway and people were like moving in and out of the cars and the driver <laughs> oh would God. get in the side. Yes, it would be like chaos. <laughs> I didn't realize moving around in between cars was part of it. Oh yeah, people would jump out Holy of their car, shit. jump into another person's car. The driver of the car, of the whip, would get out, get on top of the car with like a camcorder. <laughs> like it was totally... It was a total like era of Atlanta that I, it defies explanation to be honest. But I, yeah, I've actually been in a car where a driver stopped driving the car no. and then stood stood on t- on the um. It's that what is it? It's the part of the car the that sideboard the sideboard that we're talking about today with your film. I'm sure uh-huh. that part of the car like standing up. Fully body, fully out of the vehicle, <laughs> and I'm scr- I'm screaming. I'm screaming. By the way, I was gonna say, what is your reaction in that moment? Like, yay or no? I'm holy like, shit, we're gonna die. I like you. I am also risk averse, especially when it comes to cars. <laughs> and I was like, get in the car. <laughs> this isn't funny. Oh my god! It was From the a- time I started driving at sixteen, whenever any of my friends would pull some fuck shit in a car that they were driving, I turned into everyone's mom yes. instantly. Yeah, like this is a this is a huge vehicle. This is a two ton vehicle. Yes, <laughs> treat it with respect. Get behind the wheel. Well, well, I'll fuck. tell you the closest that I ever came to either of our films today in my life was. <laughs> this is actually amazing, but it was not fun for me. It was amazing for my friend. It wasn't fun for me. So my friend Darren Hanlon, who is this um, Australian musician, he is. Uh, an incredible dude. He comes to the States a lot to tour and I've known him for like over 20 years. So one time when he came to Atlanta, he rented a car and for some reason they gave him, I think it was actually a Dodge Challenger, like the <laughs> the car that's in Vanishing Point, right? The, my movie. So, But it was like a muscle car. It was some kind of muscle car. If it wasn't a Dodge Challenger, it was something else. And he's like this, folk artist from Australia in this like ridiculous souped up American car. Okay. So he's like, we have to do something with this car. Like I'm just like driving to the store and driving to the gig. And he was like, do you want to take it somewhere and maybe like do some donuts, you know, just (gasps) do some donuts. So I was like, okay, sure. You know, far be it for me to deny my, international friend the opportunity to do something very American like that, okay? So we went to this church parking lot that was down the street from my apartment, and we were doing donuts, and I was so scared because the car is so powerful, right? Yeah, That was like, you know, it's like hugging the road. It's like designed for that kind of shit. And he was going so fast, that I was, like, terrified for my life. I mean, we were in a controlled environment for the most part, but at the same time, I was like, I can't even imagine doing this for real. Like, we're, like in, a, in a car chase or otherwise. I'm just like, this is Around scary. Around a track. <laughs> I genuinely don't even know how you can intentionally get yourself into a donut situation because going fast and slamming on the brakes feels like hell to me oh my gosh yeah it was basically like 
I don't think he did the Tokyo Drift. Okay, that part would have freaked me out. The Tokyo Drift is what... That can go off the rails, it seems like, very quickly. What if you now, Tokyo I- <laughs> Drift into the church? Or whatever. Like... Scary. You have to have such a specific amount of space to Tokyo Drift. <laughs> it's like you can't just be drifting into a, a, a grocery store. And if you're on the streets, Tokyo Drifting, you're going to be Tokyo Drifting over bridges and shit and like going over the fucking guardrails. Listen, it, like I've hydroplaned once or twice in my life. That To me, that means I do not like Tokyo Drifts because I don't Absolutely like the feeling not. of being out of control. Yeah. If you have ever driven on black ice, yes. Tokyo Drifting ain't your fucking friend. <laughs> <laughs> like at all. And I'll say this I have never watched a single Fast and Furious movie <laughs> or any of the offshoots like Hobbs and Shaw. I've never watched a single one. I think over this holiday break, I'm going to watch them all. Well, I'm going to tell you right now incredible idea. <laughs> um, our producer, Casey. Did that recently, I think, right? Like, Casey and his yes. wife did the, did the whole run of the Fast and Furious movies. I, I think they're fun. And I think that there's a reason why Filipino people fucking love Paul Walker. It's, it's like, it feels like uh, a franchise that's very friendly to people of color. <laughs> very diverse. Very diverse. Yes. It's about family. It's about cars. Stakes, drifting. Michelle Rodriguez is there somehow. Yeah. I don't know how she fits in. I thought Angelina Jolie was part of it, but she's in the Gone in 60 yeah. Seconds crew. I was going to say, so I can get confused by that kind of stuff too. Ludacris. But I fucking love... Ludacris is there. The original Atlian is there. So you'll love them. I think you'll love those movies. If you don't understand why we're saying Atlian, you have to go back to one of our very early episodes yeah. to understand. I think the title of the episode is Atlian. <laughs> and that is not how I pronounced it or how I thought it was pronounced at all. <laughs> That's it. To this day, that makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> I thought you were going to lose your mind. But I'm like, wait, I thought it was Atlian. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what are you talking about? This is the last part of my timeshare presentation about the Fast and the Furious movies. Now you know that Vin Diesel is a hardcore nerd that plays Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. So it's all there for you. I think it's perfectly set up for you to enjoy all of them. So I'm ready to go. The same the same way that I love, inexplicably love watching people get punched in the face in movies. I fucking love car chases. Yeah. And, so I'm digging in. And to be honest, your film this week is probably the most famous car chase sequence in film history, I would say. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And yours, though, is like cult classic car chase. And you're going first, and I want you to just jump right the fuck in. Uh, all right, so my film uh, for the theme, Pedal to the Metal, is from 1971. The screenplay was written by Guillermo Cabrera Infante under the pseudonym Guillermo Kane. Directed by Richard Serafian. And it's called Vanishing Point. And there goes the challenger being chased by the blue, blue meanies on wheels. The vicious traffic squad car after our lone driver. 
the super driver of the Golden West. Get your motor running. <laughs> Just kidding. I hate that song. As, as we, as we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> if they played that song in this movie, I think there would have been a riot. Oh, I wouldn't have picked this movie if they played that song. No. I'd been like, no. fuck this fucking boomer nightmare. Speaking of boomer nightmares, right? So we have this episode about Easy Rider, which is yes. the, and anything that we're referencing right now, that's where it comes from. So listen to that episode if you haven't. We talked about Easy Rider. We talked about the kind of ripple effect that that movie had on culture and film and everything. And I think it's fairly obvious if if you watch Vanishing Point or if you haven't seen it and are watching it for the first time, you obviously don't have a movie like Vanishing Point without Easy Rider, right? Right. Because it, it borrows a lot of the same concepts and sort of, you know, messaging as Easy Rider. But generally... This era, this 1970s era, was huge for road movies, right? Period. Mm-hmm. So there was not just these types of, like, existential, like, trips across America type of films like Vanishing Point, Easy Rider, Tulane Blacktop. We had an episode about Tulane Blacktop, same thing. Um, but, you know, you have yep. stuff like, you know, Paper Moon and these kind of, like, you know, Thieves Like Us, these sort of, like... Uh, road trip films about, you know, people who are in families or relationships. And then you have all the way through to the end of the 70s with, like, Smoking the Bandit and stuff like that. So it's like, mm-hmm. you think about, why were the 70s sort of ripe for these types of films to exist, right? And I think it's because of Easy Rider, because we're, like, in this mm-hmm. era where people are interrogating the idea of America and freedom and, you know, Vietnam's happening and there's counterculture and social upheaval and, you know, different movements and stuff. So, you know, we're talking, the 70s is a dark era, right? We've talked about that. (laughs) And people are really thinking about the sort of darkness of America, you know? Absolutely. And I think that's such an astute point, too, that, like, the post-war reaction to coming back and interrogating America, but also, like, this country has so much fucking space. Yeah. And there are not a lot of places where you can traverse that many miles in one nation. Yeah. And kind of, you know, see so many different ways of life or types of people yeah. in one encapsulated space. So Totally. And, you know, I will argue, too, that I feel like this film was was maybe the most famous thing a lot of the people in it were involved with. I mean, I, I would I would say it's probably Richard Serafian's most famous movie or kind of like the movie that a lot of people know him for. I mean, he did other things. He actually re- he actually made that movie Eye of the Tiger. Remember I talked about that movie Eye <gasps> of the Tiger with Gary oh, God, Busey? Yeah. Uh, oh my God, yes. So he had done other films, but I feel like Vanishing Point is his probably most no- well-known. And then also for the screenplay writer and um, the lead actor in the film, Barry Newman, who mm-hmm. he actually passed away earlier this year in May, R.I.P. King. But yeah, so I think that this this film was kind of singular in in that regard, but also was a part of this bigger movement of these films that were sort of talking about, like, what does it mean to be free? And, like, what are these institutions that are, like, suppressing individuality and freedom? And, you know, it's, so it's a very mm-hmm. much 
like Easy Rider in that way. Absolutely. So I'm not going to do a one-sentence synopsis because quite honestly, the plot is very simple. And it's actually, there's not a lot of dialogue in the film. I mean, there in that way, there's a lot of uh, silence, a lot of people driving and not saying much, much like Tulane Blacktop. But the beginning of the movie kind of takes place you know, in sort of mid-action, there's already a car chase happening at the very beginning of the movie. And it's in a small desert town. There's a car that's driving very fast down the road, and it's being chased by police and helicopters. And then all of a sudden you see these two giant excavators in the middle of the road, right? And you're like, what's up with that? You know? Uh, So clearly there's something going on. But then... After that sequence, it kind of jumps into the story, which is that this is a movie about this this male this male character named Kowalski, and he's played by Barry Newman. And again, much like Tulane Blacktop, much like Easy Rider, he's a man of very few words. Right? You don't really know his story. He kind of is who he is, and uh, you only kind of really learn about him as the movie continues. But um, up front, you're like, okay, he's just this car driver. All you figure out is that he has to drive a car from Denver to San Francisco, which is a 1970 white Dodge Challenger, which is um, now, because of this movie, I think, a pretty iconic car. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, um, a lot of movies were influenced by Vanishing Point, like Baby Driver, but also Death Proof, the Tarantino movie. And I think they actually drive a white Dodge Challenger in that film. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all we know is that he's he's transporting a car from one city to another. And at some point, he stops pretty early on in the trip, and he uh, picks up some, some uppers from a friend of his. And, uh, you know, he bets his friend that he's going to be able to make it to San Francisco in a very short amount of time, like a day or two. And his friend's like, nah. And he's like, no, nah, I can't. <laughs> Trust me. I got all this speed. I can stay up all night. Now that I got all this fucking, <laughs> these fucking pills, I'm good. Yeah. But <laughs> but see, this, but this is the thing that I think is important to remember, at least for me, when I watch this movie again. He's not technically doing anything super illegal, right? Like, he's, yeah. he's not transporting drugs. He's not kidnapping somebody. He's just driving a car very fast, and he's taking some trucker speed or something. He's just driving a car really fast. Yeah. That is the plot of the film. <laughs> yeah, Which that's I why I didn't love. do a one-sentence synopsis, because I was like, this is just a, a, a movie about a dude who drives very fast. Just so simple. But, and he's not even taking speed like a, you know, a maniac. He's taking it to just stay <laughs> awake. So, but that's yeah, the thing. Not, he doesn't have, like, the cold sweats or anything. Yeah, like, he's yeah. just, you know. And there are times in the movie where he actually turns down the opportunity to take other drugs. So think about it in that way. You're like, okay, so here's a guy that's just kind of driving a car fast, and but he's not doing anything beyond that, okay? I always, it's that's a thing to remember, at least for me. So he's driving the car pretty fast, though. And he gets, he, uh, some cops start, you know, being like, who is this speed demon. So they try to pull him over. And of course he just blows them off. And that's when the shit starts going down. Right. And, and he, and this, this thing is happening across multiple States. And, you know, so you have these like 
highway patrol folks who are trying to capture him. And then, you know, the baton gets passed when he moves into another jurisdiction. But he's going really fast. And these cops are like, we got to stop this dude. All right. Meanwhile, there's a there's a DJ, a disc jockey <laughs> character who is blind. Uh, and he works at this very small radio station in the middle of nowhere. And he goes by the name of Super Soul. And he's played by uh, Cleavon Little, who you might know from Blazing Saddles. And Super Soul gets wind of, uh, you know, Kowalski kind of doing this, this journey, this uh, r- driving this challenger across multiple states. And he's like, hell yeah, this guy's my guy. Like, let's, let's start cheering him on over here. And he's on the radio and he's and he's listening to the police scanners and he's trying to give, you know, messages to Kowalski as he's driving to be like, hey, here's roadblocks, here's something, you know, watch out for this, watch out for that. So Super Soul kind of, at some point, uh, he kind of turns Kowalski into this like folk hero type, mm-hmm. right? Um, and people are starting to cheer him on. And it's it's very much like uh, Smoking the Bandit in that way where... yes. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I I, was like, oh, yeah, this is like the feeling of Smoking the Bandit where there's like all these people, normal people who are like, yes, let's cheer this guy on. He's doing something awesome. I, that was the first thought when I, because I had only seen this movie once before. Yeah. And re- re-watching it and realizing, oh, it came out in 71. And then like you were saying earlier in the intro about how many movies were influenced by it. I'm like, oh, this is definitely where Smoking the Bandit had to have gotten this idea. Yeah. Because the driving folk hero is... Now a trope, but it wasn't back then. I think in that Smokey and the Bandit episode, I call that movie an A-Cab classic. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of think Vanishing Point is an A-Cab classic as well. I'm just saying. You got people teaming up against the Popo. Yeah. So, oh, and I I have to note that Super Soul's producer in the film is John Amos, who, of course, is James from Good Times, amongst many other things. You know John uh, Amos. Are we rest in peace, King? Is he dead? No, are he's not dead. Peace, I swear to God, oh, I thought... Oh, thank God. Wait. Thank God. He's not dead. <laughs> I would have known I about could that not shit remember. if he died. No, he's alive. Thank fucking God. Oh, thank God. Let's send him a card for Christmas. May he live forever. I will... Call Protect us. John Amos at all costs. I know. <laughs> But, okay, so we're going to go back to this Kowalski character, right? Because, you know, again, he's this kind of enigmatic, now he's like folk hero type guy, you know. You know what's really interesting to me, too, about the actor Barry Newman is that this is not a Peter Fonda type, would you say? No, no, he's not a high-assed, high gentleman. He doesn't, beyond the fucking, like, billowy blouse and the... um the vest, maybe, he kind of is an unassuming countercultural type, wouldn't you say? Yes. Oh, yeah, he's flying under the radar for sure. Yeah. He, this is also, like, a reluctant thing that's been foisted upon him. Yeah. He was just on this personal journey. Yes. And now it's, like, a nationwide event. Yes. And that's that's what I will say is or seems a bit different than the Easy Rider scenario is that he could pass as a normal person in society for the most part. And as you figure out in these flashback sequences, you figure out that he used to be in the military. He was a soldier in Vietnam. You figure out that he was uh, at some point a motorcycle race 
driver. He was, at one point, a fucking cop. Mm-hmm. And there's this really, I think, important sequence that happens when, during the flashback sequence of when he was a police officer, where he stopped this sexual assault uh, that was happening in the police car when his partner was essentially assaulting this young woman in the backseat of their of their car. And Kowalski stops it from happening and obviously has a big problem with it. So in that moment, mm-hmm. I think that is a context clue that kind of gives you an idea about who this character is, right? Absolutely. That he was a part of the establishment, that he was involved in these institutions, and he is now disenchanted by it all. Actively left of his own regard. Right. And is happy to push the boundaries where he can, but not to the point where he's causing destruction or... Yes. You know, I love that that synopsis of him. I think that's a great, very astute assessment. Yeah. And, like, there's actually scenes in the movie where, you know, there's along the way on this journey, if you will, he's running into people who are kind of either helping or hurting his mission, depending on who who it is. Like, at the very beginning, he kind of, uh, this, he's kind of flanked while he's driving by this, like, weird dude in this other car. Um, He's kind of got this, like, red helmet on. He's like, come on, race me, motherfucker. Like, what are you doing? And then Kowalski's like, get away from me. And then like pushes him (laughs) off the road. But Kowalski actually gets out of his car to check on the dude to make sure he was okay. So he's got a conscience, right? He's obviously like a fully formed character in that way. He's not just this like psycho on the road who's, you know, just trying to get to, to San Francisco to win his bet. Like he's... No, he's not like a renegade. Exactly. Yeah, he's not a renegade at all. Right. But he also runs into, there's, um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Easy Rider where he goes out into the desert and he, he meets up with this like snake handler guy who like, he's like, his his job is to collect snakes for Pentecostal churches. <laughs> which I is, always wondered where they came from. Always wondered where they came now from. Now you know. Now you know. Apparently, there's a church out in the desert where Rita Coolidge's band is playing, and uh, <laughs> they need snakes. And uh, this guy is tasked with collecting snakes. And um, and Kowalski meets up with him and, and is like gets gas from him, and he ends up being very helpful for him. Um, there's also this scene, too, in a, another kind of interesting scene where Kowalski drives past this car uh, of these newlyweds, uh, and their their car, I guess, is stopped on the side of the road, and it en- ends up being two gay men. And they're in the car. He picks them up. You know, he's like, "Cool, I'm going to San Francisco." They're like, "Great, so are we." And then at some point, they decide to try to rob him. And maybe that's like their grift is that they pretend to be stranded so that they can rob people. But it's this very interesting scene because I think Kowalski. I think maybe in uh, a different iteration of a film like this, you'd think, oh, he's a homophobe and he wouldn't want to stop for pe- for these guys. But he does, and he has no problem with it until he gets robbed by them. So, you know. Yeah, he has no problem with their sexuality. He's just like, yes. y'all robbing me. What the fuck? I know. So that's just an interesting, you know, part of the story. But he's, you know, essentially, you know, kind of moving through this America you know, in the same way, like, in Easy Rider, he's 
you know, meeting up with these like helpful hippies and including there's this guy that that, that actually helps him out a shit ton. Uh, but his girlfriend is essentially riding her motorcycle naked in the desert. I gotta say, I was like, that would be amazing. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, you know, I maybe I'm, I'm more towards the never nude part of the spectrum, as you know. But I'm like, can you imagine living in an environment where there's nobody around and you can just ride a fucking motorcycle naked? I know. It sounds dope as hell and super free. Yes. And all I'm thinking about is how hot that seat is and how hot those pipes are around you. And if you make one false move, you're burning your fucking cooch or you're burning your legs <laughs> to shit. Again, risk averse. <laughs> risk averse. I will hop on a motorcycle fully clothed any day of the week. But naked, it looks cool as hell. I wish I had it in me to like get that voice out of my head that's like, you're going to singe your fucking shins. Yes. <laughs> on some like spark plug. <laughs> to say to say nothing of the 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 sand and dust that could get into the nether regions. <laughs> Your vagina is going to look like a vacuum bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this woman was not pressed about any of that stuff. She was like, at all. She's like, I don't care if my shit looks like a Dyson filter. Let's go. Let's go. Hair in the breeze. I was I was very inspiring to me in that moment to see that. But yes. But I will say, the more that Kowalski keeps driving, the more he keeps getting away from these cops, the more intent they are in stopping his ass. And Soul, Super Soul's broadcasts are, you know, kind of continuing. At some point, the police are so intent on shutting him down that they actually raid the radio station and they beat and arrest Super Soul and the John Amos character. And it's just like this moment where you're like, oh yeah, this is the commentary that is, you know, exists in this film is these institutions and how intent they seem to be on on not letting people be free. Right. Absolutely. And there's something that we, that shares in common with my movie as well, in a weird way, is like how violent these institutions were towards black people. Yep. Like, without impunity, just, you know, flat out, like, you know, well, that's the first stop if we want to kick ass. Or in this case, you know, Super Soul is kind of a, a latent sidekick. Yeah. But, you know, so they kind of, you know, you can understand the reasoning of why they went there to, like, prevent Kowalski from being able to proceed easily. Yeah. Right. Um, but, yeah, that's something that that's in both of our films. We're definitely going to talk about it in mine, too. Yeah, for sure. I figured we would. That's great. But, um. Yeah, so I mean here so here's the thing. I want to I want to point this out because this is actually pretty interesting to me. So the version that I told everybody to watch that's online on the internet archive is apparently the UK version of the film because in the UK version there's a scene towards the end where Kowalski gives a ride to this hippie woman that's standing out in the middle of the road. And it's and the woman is played by Charlotte Rampling, who you know. Apparently, this whole sequence was actually cut from the U.S. version, and I don't really know why. I read maybe people didn't think it worked or something. But anyway, it's in the U.K. version, which is the version that's on Internet Archive. Okay, so her her sequence is like she shows up, 
she gives Kowalski a joint and, you know, he decides that he's finally going to smoke some weed and it's insinuated that they kind of spend the night together in his car. And then the next day he wakes up and she's gone. And he has no idea, like, what happened to her, where she went. Now, it's interesting because I read some people's um, takes on what this scene symbolizes, right, in the context of the film. And I think Barry Newman and the director were kind of hinting at the idea of this character being almost like a Grim Reaper type of character. Like, she's an allegory for death, essentially. And if you think about it in terms of that she's seems to be the last character that he interacts with one-on-one until the final scene. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because it is kind of like a, huh, that's really strange that he would have this interaction with this strange woman. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And it was cut from the American version, which again, I don't know, maybe they thought that doesn't make sense or that's something too I weird. I that. Yeah. I kind of love that, but I also, I didn't go there. I kind of thought like, oh, this is a figment of, this is possibly a figment of his imagination as that he used as a way to talk himself into smoking pot. Yes. So it's similar, but not quite the same. But yeah, I like the Grim Grim Reaper analogy. Well, and then to your point though, being that this is towards the end of his trip, like, you know, he's been on speed for multiple days and he hasn't exactly. he hasn't slept. And, you know, now he's high for the first time on his journey. Like, yeah, maybe it does feel like it was a figment of his imagination. Like he, you know. Yeah. Like his body telling him to calm down. Like yeah. this is over. It's almost over. Yeah. She's a siren or something in that way. If you want to make the um, Ulysses comparison. Um, <laughs> as we do. As we always <laughs> Do so, but I will say the ending of this movie is very shocking, much like Easy Rider, very thought provoking in the same way as Easy Rider, and I think that's kind of what what makes this film very interesting and 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 sort of that existential conversation, right? It's that like mm-hmm. what happens to people who want to live freely and want to be authentically themselves, right? I'll say that this film did not do well when it was released, and the studio was pretty much like, well, let's just put it on the shelf. Like, a couple weeks out in the theaters, and then it went away. But apparently it did really well in Europe, um, which uh-huh. prompted uh-huh. Fox to re-release it, and they re-release it in the U.S. on a double bill with the French Connection, Oh, shit. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, I, and and now I think that Vanishing Point is a is a cult classic. I mean, it's hard to see, obviously. We couldn't find yeah. it beyond Internet Archive. I think it has a lot to do with the music. There's a lot of um, music in the film. But I love this movie. I appreciate films of this era, like, in that way that we discussed. Just talking about America, talking about government and police and institutions and the ways mm-hmm. in which, you know, they interact with uh, people's joy and freedom for living. And I feel like that is a question that is still being asked t- today. So, you know, I mean, it's, you know, obviously like a film that has staying power because it's very topical. And I don't know. I th- a great car chase movie. Very exciting. And um, 
Yeah, it's my pick. I love it. I love that you picked it. I love that I got to watch it again. It's such a quintessential car chase film, but I'm glad that you also consider it a cult classic because I feel like a lot of people haven't seen it. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's hard to get. Maybe it's because it's just not like in the ether in the same way. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of filmmakers who have been deeply inspired by this film. Yeah. And not not just the car chase part, but like the development of the story and this this type of character, this kind of solitary dude. And like, mm. there have been a lot of people who've been influenced by this movie. And I think it's always worth watching the source material Agreed. instead of just, you know, kind of looking at what other people have done with it. It's great to see that creativity at play, but I like that the original film still has that hold for me. Yeah. Um, and the story is captivating and it's interesting and it's just of a time. But I think it's a great counterpart to Easy Rider, French Connection, like all these other great movies about traveling around. Yeah, I to- totally agree. Chases. There's also, there's also, I will say, I, I will, this is going to be another thing that might be hard to see, but there was also a TV series in the, in the late 60s with Michael Parks called Then Came Bronson. Kind of the same... Oh concept, though. It's a guy who, you know, was a quote-unquote upstanding member of society in a lot of ways that decided to be like, fuck it, I'm going to go out on the road and I'm going to ride a motorcycle across America and meet people and 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 just kind of like live for the moment. And again, air, very air appropriate, but like, yeah, this was that conversation that was happening at this time. And I don't know, I'm fascinated by these movies and um, especially Vanishing Point. I agree. Could not agree more. And I just, I love, I love a movie that there's something that's so enticing to me about car chase movies or just car ride movies. And I think it's because I've always equated driving with freedom Yes. um, in my personal life. So I just really love, it's part of the reason why I kind of love seeing this replicated on on screen. But this is a, a great fucking choice and you did a great fucking job. Thank you so much. Speaking of great choices, you got a Billy Friedkin classic. Oh, shit. My movie was also released in 1971. It was written by Ernest Tideman, uh, but it's based on a book by Robin Moore and directed by William Friedkin. My movie is The French Connection. Our friend's name is Boca, Salvatore Boca, B-O-C-A. Well, downtown, they're pretty sure he pulled off a contract on a guy named DeMarco. Hey, you picking your feet in Poughkeepsie? You picking your feet in Poughkeepsie? And I'm like, damn, homie is obsessed. <laughs> I, I say this as somebody who's seen The French Connection a bunch of times. What does that mean? And the first time that he says it, he's like, my partner got shot by somebody who was picking their feet and then, like, picked their teeth or something like that. So he's looking for a very specific person because I think he thinks that's such an odd behavior that it would be specific to one person, but it totally isn't. And I'm like, oh, this has to do with some kind of, like, stakeout partner shooting behavior or something is how I interpreted it. Yeah. Plus the term picking your feet is so Mm. gross. So wildly disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, are we talking between the toes? Are we talking like nails and cuticle? Oh God. What are you like popping blisters down there and fucking fixing some corn? Peeling the skin off? What are you doing with those fucking hammer toes? (laughs) You've ever seen a hammer toe? <laughs> Picking feet. What the fuck? I want to I want to see a 70s hammer toe getting <laughs> someone just going to town on a gnarly 70s hammer toe. Good. Yeah. <laughs> a seven a 70s hammer toe is very specific because they didn't have the tech back then to do anything about it. 
<laughs> they're like, oh, did you fuck up your feet? They're going to stay fucked up. <laughs> like, so sorry. Should have been wearing them high heels. Or those fucking jackboots or whatever the fuck did this to you. But we ain't got the tech. <laughs> we, we don't have the tech to straighten out your fucking toe. <laughs> fucking hammer time. <laughs> I would watch a whole movie about Popeye Doyle developing a fucking foot fetish looking for this one specific goddamn dude. And he's just looking at feet across the tri-state area. <laughs> And he becomes an inadvertent expert in foot fungus. He's like a podiatrist. He becomes a podiatrist. Listen. I would watch it. If you don't write French Connection 4, Popeye's (laughs) hammer toe. (laughs) (laughs) I I will send you to a pricey writing retreat so you have the energy to write French Connection 4, Popeye's hammer toe. We will be funded by a wealthy white woman who's like, oh, hammer toes, sure. That's a cause I stand behind. Go forth and write it. We'll break, we'll, we'll, we will drag Gene Hackman out of retirement. Drag him. He's like riding a fucking bicycle through New Mexico. Like, that's the only time people see him now. They're like, oh, yeah, he's like riding his bike through fucking New Mexico. And I'm like, guess what? You coming back and talking about these hammer toes. He's like, I would like to die now. <laughs> Can I just... It's the sweet abyss. I would rather do anything but that. (laughs) Amazing how long I can riff on a hammer toe, isn't it? I love it. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I've learned something about myself today. Um, So this movie, classic. Mm. It's won five Academy Awards. It's consistently on the top of the best movies of all times list. Yes. Uh, My one-sentence synopsis. A lightly assholish cop with a heart of gold uncovers a plot to move a huge shipment of drugs into New York City while his partner reluctantly joins him for the ride. <laughs> Absolutely perfection. So this cast is fucking incredible. We've got Gene Hackman playing Jimmy Popeye Doyle. Roy Scheider plays Buddy Cloudy Russo. Mm. Um, they are partners. Uh, the movie starts, however, in Marseille. In France, and Marseille looks rough as hell in the 70s. Like, it does not look all (laughs) charming and sweet. There's a dude that gets, as soon as the movie opens, there's a dude who's like, gets shot, and then the guy who shoots him steals his baguette. Like, it's fucking rough (laughs) in those streets. You know, when that scene happens, I'm like, yo, I would break a piece off of that too. It's fucking fresh. You can't let a good baguette go (laughs) go to die along with this dude. In France, that's where they're so fresh and so delicious. You got to shoot a guy and then take his fucking plan for lunch away from him as well. (laughs) And then we also meet this character in France named Hélène Charnier. And this is, so it's based on a book by Robin Moore. And the book was a nonfiction book. Like this actually happened. This is based on real cops, real criminals. Wow. And Hélène is kind of this mover and shaker. Like he's just kind of fishing off of his back porch and like, into this beautiful sea and he's got this very young wife and, you know, he's he's just kind of happy with his life. And over time, you know, because they kind of go back and forth for a little bit before they make the French connection. Mm. And over time you learn, like he's the kind of guy who like, he on his way to a drug deal, he like picks an oyster right out of the sea and like carves it open and eats it. Living he's like living life. his best fucking life. Living, living that his life. life. And he goes to this meeting eventually with this other guy named Pierre Nicoli. And 
they meet up with this actor named Henry Devereaux. And Pierre is like, I don't trust this shit. This TV star is not going to be able to, like, take our fucking product and do what we need to do with it. But Charnier is like, yeah, he definitely will. So they're basically, we're looking at this plot develop where they are, Charnier is is going to hide a bunch of drugs with this TV star who is going to America to kind of complete a project or work mm. on a project. Mm-hmm. Now, back in Brooklyn, we've got Popeye Doyle, an iconic character for the hat alone. And when we meet Popeye Doyle and Cloudy <laughs> Russo, he's playing a street Santa and Russo is playing, uh, like he's pretending to be a hot dog cart guy. And I just have to say, up top, they are reaching Modine levels with these disguises throughout this movie. A hundred percent. I was like, this is some Mary to the Mob shit. Or maybe Absolutely. Mary to the Mob is this. Ex- Mary to the Mob is reaching French connection levels with their <laughs> fucking disguises. Because I'm like, I'm, as you're watching this shit unfold, you're like, oh, now they're mailmen. Now they're factory workers. Now they're like pushing a carriage. They're just keep getting in disguises. And I'm like, the budget for these costumes is insane for a police precinct <laughs> um i i have i have to ask this question again so i just apologize to our listeners i apologize to you in advance danielle what are your thoughts on roy scheider in french connection roy scheider is he's always got that cigarette hanging out of his mouth in most of his roles the best um he is so low-key over being a cop i think but he fucking loves hanging out with Popeye Doyle. I feel like when he's working, he just he's hanging out with his friend. Yes. Otherwise, he's like, I I could take it or leave it. Yeah. That's but exactly so how cute. I feel in my life when I do this podcast. I love hanging out with you. <laughs> exactly. And when I'm done, I'm like, fuck it. Like, go back to the the dark, the darkness. <laughs> also, I'm gonna dangle this out there. Roy Scheider is hot as shit in the French connection. To me. He's kinda hot. He's kinda hot in this film. And I I, I have listen, I have we have broached the subject of Roy Scheider before, especially when we did all that jazz. We know he's America's finest cigarette dangling actor. We know that. But for some reason in French Connection, I'm like, he's kind of hot. He's like a hottie in this movie. I think it's because he's got that like that low-key energy in this. It's yeah. not that out front main character energy. It's like my life is fine. I don't need to. I don't need a front. I don't need a flex. He gives Popeye the space to be himself. <laughs> Absolutely, he's very forgiving. Yeah. At one point, he walks in on his partner. He goes to his house, his apartment, and Popeye is in bed, and he's like, "Yeah, come in." And he has to break into his fucking house with a credit card because this man is too lazy to get out of bed. <laughs> But the way that he just casually breaks in with a fucking credit card and sees this dirtbag, disgusting partner of his with handcuffs on his ankles and a woman he picked up because he liked the way her ass looked on a bicycle. Yeah. It's just like so chill. He's like, yeah, whatever. I see this every day. He's just got a real chill energy to him in this movie that I think enhances the hots. Oh, I, I think so too. I mean, he's kind of moving into laconic oaf territory, if you will. Absolutely. <laughs> we are going to so, we are referencing so many deep I saw what you did cuts in this episode. I fucking love it. It's almost like they have to listen to the podcast in order to understand what we're talking about. 
Anyway. We have reached that point three years in where like, you will not understand us if you haven't listened to every episode. And I love it. And that's what I'm always going for. Exactly. So I, but I had to ask because, I, you know, I, I, you know, I just had to figure out horny levels for Roy Scheider in this film. In this so. movie, they are as high as they will ever be for Roy Scheider. Yes. For me. Okay. They will Good. never be higher than this. Good to know. <laughs> Jaws, all that jazz. So many others where I'm like, nah. And then here, I'm like, you know what? Maybe. Yeah. And maybe is as high as I'm going with him. Maybe. Absolutely. Makes perfect <laughs> sense. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Gene Hackman, however, would 100% destroy. What? What? Oh, I have had the hots for that dude since I was a kid. Okay. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. He, okay, even in spite of his picking feet and Poughkeepsie referencing his the fact that oh. when he when Roy Scheider gave him the keys to take that handcuff off of his foot, I'm pretty sure it was black. His foot was black. <laughs> he had lost like all feeling and sense because this fucking lady that he decided to have a one night stand with cuffed his <laughs> ankle too tight, and he let it happen. That's the kind of dirtbag I'm about sometimes. Yeah, he seems fun as hell in this movie. He's huffing it. When he's, like, running through the goddamn subway and, like, jumping over railings and shit, I'm like, this guy may not be healthy enough for all this. <laughs> Most 70s cops were not. <laughs> Show me a 70s-era cop who you're like, yeah, he could take Channing Tatum in a race. It ain't <laughs> happening. Most 70s cops were the definition of the coffee and donuts era, dude. Oh, my God. Where they're not moving any more than they have to. That's why I fucking love 70s crime movies. I mean, honestly, the cops were so unhealthy. (laughs) Like, nobody's winning any fucking presidential fitness tests. It's glorious. It's glorious. And it adds adds to the tension because you're like, I truly don't know if he can catch this fucker. Yeah. Like, every chase scene, you're like, we don't know how it's going to go. Look at him. And in spite of all of this, you would destroy the D. This is so interesting. 100% would have the weirdest night of my life with that one. <laughs> that little curly-haired, balding weirdo. Absolutely. His little puffy face. I don't know why. Especially because he says some of the most fucked up shit in this movie <laughs> that I've ever heard. That points directly to a level of self-loathing that I'm not willing to address. <laughs> But we will get into it. <laughs> so these two are fucking partners, and they're just so weirdly matched up. But it's that, you know, the the light and dark, and, like, they are very well matched. Mm. Um, but when we meet them, they're just kind of, like, roughing people up, specifically at this this bar that's filled with black people, black patrons. And, a, and they chase this guy through an empty lot in Brooklyn. It's probably, like, a fucking Panera now. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's like some $9 million artist loft community now. But back then it was like an empty lot with fires burning in it <laughs> where people got chased and beaten almost to death in it. And we find out that they are partners. Eventually we find out they're partners in the Narcotics Bureau. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, there's just so many interesting moments with them where they're kind of, their whole job is is looking and waiting and watching. And there's a level of, of quiet to this movie that I think is what elevates it a little bit and elevates it at least to the status of classic because there's so many 
foot chases before we get to the quintessential car chase. There's so many moments of just watching and waiting. And it's like watching, It's you're seeing a dance happen between all of these detectives where they're like, you know, now you go and watch him and I'm going to walk over here. And then somebody else comes into the scene. It's very well choreographed. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely does not work because everyone they're following is like, yo, we're being tailed. Like it does not work at all. They're not being sly about it, but it works for them to get the information they need. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful to watch. I think that William Friedkin was great at that. We talked about him a lot during our Exorcist episode. Um, this is probably one of his more like probably the movie he's most known for aside from Exorcist. Yes. And I just think he's really, there's something on display here about his skill set that I just fucking love watching. The movie looks good to me even still. Yeah. But these folks are just watching people and they go to this nightclub. And this is something that, this is one of the scenes I want to talk about where I'm like, yeah, Popeye Duel is kind of fucked up. Because he's kind of a dick. Like even the people that work with him in his precinct are like, not that guy. (laughs) You get the feeling that Russo is the only one that can work with him because he's really aggressive. He's a lot. Um, And he has his own ideas about how shit should go down. And at one point, they're talking about someone that they just arrested. And Doyle says, never trust an N-word. And then they go to a club where there's Black women performing on stage and they're like cutting it up and having a good time. And I'm like, this is such... A, a glimpse of America then and now mm. where you've got these people who are like, let me use this most derogatory fucking phrase I can that is filled with such malice and violence and really just kind of like purports to know what a person is just because by the color of their skin. And then they'll go and consume our entertainment and consume our fucking output mm. and use us in that way, but still call us that. So that is a throwaway scene, but it just hits me so hard now as an adult every time I see it. And I I wouldn't say that he's even racist. Like, this is very much like a product of its time film, but I think that's the thing that keeps a lot of movies like this kind of on the forefront is there are a lot of people unwilling to discuss those moments and they just want to focus on the fun parts. But I think that if you're going to understand the character, you have to look at that shit too. <laughs> like you can't just look at, oh, the fun running and car chasing and train chasing parts. Like you have to look at who this character is as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when we talked about One False Move and that Bill Paxton character where it was like, oh, yes. he's like idolizing and working alongside black cops but then uses the N-word around them. And you're just like, the disconnect is kind of, it's very jarring. It's shocking. And I think that was really prevalent. Again, like back then for sure, but now it seems to be coming back into prevalence where like people are drawing these distinctions. And, um, you know, I used to hear my my grandparents talk about that kind of shit and be like, well, you know, like their friends would use that word or, you know, people in, in their jobs or whatever. And they're like, yeah, well, that's just where they're from. And I'm like, that's wrong, though. And they're like, yeah, it's wrong. But what are we going to fucking do about it? Right. Like it's from a whole different time. So, yeah. And it, and it kind of another... contributes to the Popeye character's general kind of demeanor because he's kind of this like above the law type of cop. I mean, in the same way. You know, what we talked mm-hmm. about To Live and Die in L.A., you know, the other Friedkin movie, one of the other Friedkin movies we've done on the podcast, but that character yep. of the cop that goes rogue, that does things that are, like, 100% legal, you know. Completely. Yeah, he yeah. has, like, a kind of a disdain for the system. Yeah. And I think that's 
this contributes to that. This and the scene with the, you know, the woman and mm-hmm. in bed. And like, there's this kind of dis- general disdain that he has for rules and for other people, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so he kind of exhibits that. I think it's what makes him kind of a prick is like, he kind of exhibits that in every aspect of his life. Yeah. Um, but he's not a cruel person or a, or a intentionally mean person. Like everything has, like he's doing everything to get to a particular end. Like he right. has a, an idea of what he wants out of out of things. Right. Um, and he'll use anything he can to get it. So there's another scene where he goes into the same bar and they're kind of tossing the place and finding all these drugs like taped underneath the bar, which I think is hilarious. But then he starts really railing on this one dude with this big afro and you're like, what the fuck? Like this guy is a menace. And then he kind of shoves him into a closet and when they get in there, you realize, oh, this guy's an informant. Right. Like he's telling him a lot of information about this guy that he's watching and kind of, you know, he's asking him, you know, about the shipment of drugs coming in because this informant is telling him that like, yeah, the streets are kind of dry, like, but there's a word out there that something big is happening. Mm -hmm. So that's what turns Doyle and Russo towards Sal, Sal Boca and his wife, Angie. Uh, And he's wondering from this nightclub scene that we've seen them in, he's wondering how does this kind of small time criminal who owns like a sandwich shop how does this guy afford this nightclub hundred dollar tabs two cars so he starts kind of looking into him as possibly a connection to this big drug shipment that's coming in Mm -hmm. simply because he's so off the radar Mm. and i think this is one of the first not the first movie possibly but one of the first definitely the first movie i've seen where that kind of pathos became part of the investigation of like, mm. we have to start looking outside of the box. We have to start looking at the small guy. We have to start looking at whatever we can to make our case. Mm. And Sal and Angie are a piece of work. She's wearing this blonde bouffant wig that I fucking love. Um, but they're just kind of running this sandwich shop and they're just, you know, kind of being followed and watched and they follow him from the club and watch him make this drop. Um, and then they go to work. And so they're just kind of like, I'm like, all right, these guys are lightly involved in crimes, but what else is going on? Right. When Henry arrives in America with this car, it's kind of Lincoln Continental, and he's joined by Pierre, Nicoli, and Charnier, that's when they start really making the connections because they see Sal go to this big drug guy, Weinstock. They're like, why is he hanging out at his house? And they're like, they go to their boss and they're like, look, we need a wire. We need to watch the store. We need to watch the house. And their boss is also like, my God, these two, like, I don't know what to fucking do with them. But he assigns these two other cops, Mulder, Rick, and Klein. They're kind of feds. And he's like, all right, you can do it if these two are watching you. And Mulderig is one of the first people who's like, oh, God, this motherfucker, he gets cops killed and blah, blah, blah. So there's something going on where it's not just the disdain for how Popeye Doyle conducts himself in the field, there's a deeper story there about somebody who got killed probably because of his hubris. Right. Uh, is what we're discovering. But as Doyle and, and Russo are kind of, again, like they're they're watching Sal and they're kind of bouncing back and forth between this 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 scene and the the French guys that arrive. And that's where we start getting these that really cool foot chase that we see where they're doing that heavy choreographed, like watching Sal, watching um, Char- Charnier, and figuring out how they connect. And they hear Sal is meeting up with this French guy. So they follow him in traffic. They lose him, but they catch up. And Doyle is basically like, 
all right, now we know who all the fucking players are. So he starts following Charnier in one of the coolest scenes. It's the funniest, coolest scene where he's following this guy who's supposed to be in his hotel. He's already lost his first tail. Doyle starts following him. He's bouncing around the subways. The guy's going in and out of the... He's fucking with him. Like, he's going in and out of the subway, up the steps, down the steps, on the train, off the train. Mm -hmm. And they're just having this cat and mouse moment. And it's driving Doyle up a fucking wall. And then at the very last minute, they both are on this train. Charnier hops off, stands still for a minute. Doyle rockets off the train. And without even looking, he just hops back backwards onto the train again and the doors close and he takes off and he kind of gives a little wave. Like he knows they're being followed by this fucking cop. Yeah. He's like, bye. It is one of the I'm like, oh. Goodbye. <laughs> Try to find me. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm in the fucking wind in the city now. Um, but because of that moment, Charnier decides to meet with Sal in Washington, D.C. Because <laughs> he's like, like, that'll lose the tail. No, it doesn't. The guy who's following Sal just goes to D.C. Because that was back in the day when you could buy a $50 plane ticket to D.C. by walking up to the counter. Yeah, and then they just and, wrote your name on a ticket. And we're like, here you go. Yeah. Like, what? Just write <laughs> Like, you were taking a test at school or something. Yeah. Just write your fucking name down. And... So they so now they the cops still know the fucking plan because Sal was followed. So basically, Charnier, Charnier is like, all right, I'm being followed. And this guy, Popeye Doyle, like we're all being followed. But this guy, Popeye Doyle, is enemy number one. We got to get rid of him. So Doyle goes home. He's walking home one day. And as he's approaching his apartment, there's a sniper on the roof shooting at him. Like just wildly shooting into a crowded street in New York. He... Follows the guy. He follows the guy up to the roof, gets there, doesn't see the dude, looks down, see the dude is running. And this is the start of the epic car chase. It's actually this epic foot chase. So he's huffing and puffing, follows the dude onto his subway tracks. He's across the way. He's going the opposite direction. Doyle sees him get on a train, and he yells out to the cop on the train, catch that guy. He's wanted by the police. The officer on that train tries to you know, starts following Nicoli because Nicole is the one who was shooting it at Doyle. And the other thing I have to say about this movie is that the fake blood in this movie looks straight up like ketchup. Like, they made no <laughs> effort to even make it look like blood. It is just red-ass ketchup. It's great. Um, so he shoots this cop, and, like, all this shit's happening on the train. What's happening beneath the train, <laughs> this is like an elevated train going, you know, the end train going through, um, goes through Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan. And what's happening below is that Popeye Doyle has commandeered a vehicle. And the vehicle that he has commandeered is a 1971 Pontiac Le Mans, which is not the sexiest car in the world. <laughs> and it's shit brown. Like, it's a shit brown color. It's not incredibly sexy. But when he starts driving this car, I think he pushed this car into iconic status yeah. from this scene. Essentially, what happens in this chase is after he commandeers his vehicle, it is Popeye Doyle racing through the city, banging on the horn, chasing a fucking subway train <laughs> in a car. He is running red lights, and he is just like... On the movie, he, for, before he gets in the car, he you know, before he leaves the station, he asks the guy, like, what's the next stop? And it's 25th Avenue. So he knows where he's going. And he's following this train. And there's this beautiful scene where it's very layered. The train is speeding ahead, you know, above. Uh, and Doyle is speeding below on the in a car, like, just 
pedal to the fucking metal going after this, this train. However, the train does not stop at 25th because Nicoli, after he shoots the cop, busts into the conductor's booth and basically holds a gun to his head and is like, if you stop this train, I'm going to fucking kill you. And the conductor eventually passes out, like, from stress, which I would also do. Like, one of those fainting goats. He's just like, I can't! (laughs) He passes out (laughs) from fucking stress. So what happens next is we're watching Doyle follow this now speeding, reckless train that is not planning on stopping. Mm -hmm. And he runs a red light and gets broadsided. He smashes into a truck making a left turn. He avoids hitting a mother and a baby carriage by slamming into a pile of trash cans. And then he smashes into a a retaining wall. And as the train is slamming into a parked train at the next station gets out, and when he gets out of this fucking car, it looks like a crumpled up soda can. Like, he got into a pristine vehicle, and by the time this journey has ended, this car looks like absolute shit. (laughs) And it is so intense the entire time, because we can see him screaming in the car, but we can't hear him screaming. Again, like, this movie to me uses... It's such a great use of silence uh, in these pivotal scenes. But he's fucking stressed. And you don't know if he's going to make it. He doesn't know if he's going to make it. If that train wasn't stopped at that station that they slammed into, you don't know if he would have ever caught up to it. But the fact that this fucking maniac thinks he can outrun a city, a subway truck car, like he can outrun a subway, is such a, a deep peek into the mindset of someone who is just relentlessly pursuing their goal. Yeah. And... I fucking love this car chase. It is iconic for several reasons. Totally. Um, but it so perfectly encapsulates just the mania of Popeye Doyle. Yeah. 100%. I fucking love it. And the movie carries on from there where we're, you know, they kind of catch up to Charnier and how he's making the deal, even though his, you know, Doyle and Russo's boss is like, you're off the fucking case. There's nothing here. Like, we didn't catch anything. We got this car. There's nothing in it. And they eventually find the drugs that have been hidden in this car that that Henri has um, shipped to the U.S. And they find them in the sideboard <laughs> where no one was looking. They ripped this car to fucking shreds. This is <laughs> my favorite scene in the film <laughs> besides the car chase with the subway. So I recently, this is a, side, a sidebar, quickly... I recently got obsessed with this television show called To Catch a Smuggler. Oh, damn. It comes on National Geographic. The one thing that they do consistently on the show, it happens maybe once an episode, but sometimes not. But whenever, anytime it happens, I think of this scene, is when they have to take apart a fucking car to look for drugs. And the whole, and I- love it. I love it so much because of this movie. And every time yes. I see it on the show, I'm like, it's the French French connection part where they got to remove all the shit from the car to find out where the drugs are. It's fascinating to me to have to take <laughs> apart an entire fucking car. It is wonderful to Because people are fucking creative. You yes. realize when they start taking these cars apart? Yes. Like People are super fucking creative and it's the weirdest puzzle of all time. Oh, that's that's the part of it that it, that I find so interesting is that it, there's a lot of places. There's a lot of places yes. where you can hide things in a car. And the just the the sheer creativity of having to like figure out like 
where to hide it that you feel like would be the least obvious. Uh, Not for nothing, by the way. A lot of times on the show, the car that they hide drugs in is the exact same car that I drive. I won't tell (gasps) you what the make and model is, but I'm just telling you. And I'm like, yo, I drive that car. Wow, they actually pulled that whole panel off in the inside and put, (gasps) you know, drugs in there? Huh, You can hide so much shit in your car, and it doesn't have to be nefarious. It could be like gummy bears or fucking, like anything. It could be, yeah, literally anything. It could be like, you know, I don't really want to put my car shade in the pocket of the back seat because I want people to have room back there to sit. Maybe I'll just like <laughs> take apart the air conditioning panel, some storage, you know, like, I don't know, but it's fascinating. And the whole reason why I love it so much is because of this scene from the French connection where they're like, oh, absolutely. We, we took apart literally every part of this car and we can't find this shit. But yet, oh, it is like they are stressing. You've never seen people look more defeated, look more upset. And again, you don't know if they're going to find anything. And then Russo makes a brilliant discovery and they keep looking and they find it. And at one point, the mechanic the, who's working with the police to pull the car apart is like, well, I looked everywhere but here. And Doyle is like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> he knows that's where it's going to be because he's like, you left this one place unchecked. Of course, that's where they're going to be. God. Um, but it's amazing to watch them just like ripping and you're like, holy shit, like are cars actually made of cardboard? Like what is happening in this car? And these they're poking long metal rods into these little holes. Like they're looking everywhere. Yeah. And when they actually return the car, it's pristine. I'm like, wait, we just watched them rip this shit apart. And Henri comes looking for the car and they're like, yep, here it is. And I'm like, how did you do that? How did you put it back together? I think bottom line I would love to take apart a car. If I ever had the option to do it or I had the opportunity, I would that I must be so like satisfying could. to to completely take apart a car. I think if you went to any junkyard <laughs> with a screwdriver or even just like a Swiss army knife, a fucking leatherman, and you're like, yo, let me get in there and see what I can do, I guarantee people be like, knock yourself out. It's just gonna go to scrap anyway. Listen, I have a, a, maybe a milestone birthday coming up soon. If anybody wants to take me to disassemble a car for my birthday, I'm just saying. <laughs> Instead of rage rooms, new business idea, <laughs> fucking rip apart this car like the French Connection. Exactly. <laughs> new business idea. <laughs> oh, I fucking love it. Yeah, this scene is incredible. This movie is incredible. I just, I, it's definitely a Sundays with Grandpa movie for me. My grandparents love mm. this fucking movie. But it has this epic car chase in it. And again, so many other epic scenes of chasing and being chased. And I just love this. I love this car scene. Even though I know what happens, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh, is he going to get the train? Is he going to catch up? What's going to happen? I It keeps me on the edge of my goddamn seat. It's so visceral. I love it. Yeah. Well, William Friedkin is obviously a genius when it comes to car chases. And he's done so many of them in his career that are so memorable. And this is the the daddy of them all, if you will. This <laughs> is a classic. And uh, I thank you for making me watch this again. I watch it every so often. And it's just always such a treat. I love it. Yay. Same, same, same. And oh, we have we do have great movies for you next week. But mm. before that, yes. 
Um, if you want to email us for any reason, we are at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. And um, also we have a P.O. box if you want to send us real mail. Um, and you can find that in our link tree on our Instagram page. And you can now leave us a voicemail to play on the show. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please make it 60 seconds or less and please record in a quiet space. That's right. We are also on social media. Again, we are I saw pod on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Twitter. And we also have merch. Go to exactlyrightstore.com. We've got a just in time for the. Uh, Cold weather, we've got our brand new Give Us the B of the D black sweatshirt. It is so chic. You might want to get it. Warm and cozy. Yes. Warm and cozy. And we have bonus episodes. Our new bonus episodes are dropping on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. Absolutely. Oh, my God, Danielle. Talk about some 70s classics. Oh, my God. I cannot wait for next week. We're going to keep this train rolling next week, no pun intended, um, (laughs) with The Long Goodbye from 1973 and California Split from 1974. I cannot believe we haven't done either of those movies. I can't believe it either. And I am so stoked. You have no idea. Uh, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. The best. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.